I want to start tonight by sort of asking politely uh, that the universe or the directorate of, you know, just having shit happen or who's ever in charge on like a cosmic level of, you know, throwing elbows and punches to people and kind of knocking them for a loop. I'd like to ask that uh, who's ever running that right now, who's ever on duty handling that station, could they maybe take, oh, I don't know, two hours off? Like, like go aim at someone else just for a little bit, please. Sincerely. Like, could, could you maybe not hit me again? I've had a day, like a full-on day, for a number of different reasons. And I'm sure through no fault of my own, they will come up over the next however long we record because that's just sort of been the kind of day I'm having. But it is, it's a lot. And you want to know the thing that really sort of like started this, the thing that really tipped this off? It It's silly. It's really dumb. Where, like the day was already really rough as hell. And the thing that sort of pushed it off the last cliff you ever watch one of those Instagrams where somebody's making some food? Uh, doesn't really matter what it is. Maybe it's a burger. Maybe they're grilling something. Maybe they're cooking a like a what's supposed to be a dinner, and like they're using a lot of fire emoji and they're talking in the in the in the, the little description about oh my god this thing's so flavorful and they're they're wearing those black vinyl gloves and they're shaking seasonings that are probably full of sodium all over the place. Like they're really like inelegant in their their fabrication of this stuff you know they have decent knife technique they have decent ingredients but they have like a two thousand dollar super grill so of course you know they have to show it off and sort of build clout around it but they're making this thing whatever it is and they they it, you start cooking it and you're like oh that has this ingredient in it oh it has that in it oh you're you're mixing that together uh, oh oh and you're watching and you're watching because at that point it's kind of like a car crash and you're only sort of committed for maybe a minute or two. But um, they make the thing. They plate it up. They, they put it on a cutting board and they scrape a knife across it so you know it's cooked or whatever stupid reason they do that. And then they cut into it and it, it looks awful. Like it looks like something that you would either throw out or clean up after your cat puked it up. Like it looks nasty. That's, that's, that was really the moment where, um, where I knew my day was just kind of rough because normally some of those things, like the people who make cookies and pastries and pizzas and stuff, they're, they're pretty cool and chill. And there there was, you know, 90 second videos of like, here's how we're going to make a such and such cookie. They're pretty mellow. But I watched this lady make like dog vomit cooked onions and it absolutely like wrecked me because I know how much that costs and I know what it's like to make a thing and think, ah, oh, this is going to be fantastic. Then you eat it and it's hot shit. And it's just sort of the day I'm having where, man, could we, could we maybe do some good to, could we put some good out into the world? Could it, could it not be a moment where. There's some problem. Could we could we go help each other now? Could we do some positive, please? That's all I'm asking. Could we not have our Instagram videos be like vomitous, gross food stuff? Could we, you know, 
do some things. That's where I'm at right now. So let's, it's the perfect time to do a chat. It's the absolute bestest time in the whole widest world. Let's do a chat. All right. Just remember what I've taught you. And here we are again. Hello, hello, hello. This is the writer's chat for uh, March the 22nd. Hi, I'm John. It's so nice to have you here. It's so nice to be not alone. It's so nice to be together where we can try and answer some questions and see what we can do to help you write better. Um, I hope your day's been going good. I hope you weren't bombarded at all corners by all comers and a seemingly constant end of... UFC cage death matches. I hope you're doing good. I genuinely hope the writing's doing well. I hope you've got things today you can be proud of. I hope you've got things you're looking forward to. I hope you are genuinely and sincerely good. I want to thank everybody who tuned in yesterday to the uh, Once in a Blue Moon Tuesday stream where we talked about second drafts. That video, by the way, is over on the YouTube channel as well as uh, out in audio form on the podcast. So um, if you haven't listened to it or you haven't checked it out, please do. I would really appreciate it. But tonight, tonight we're chatting. And if this is the first chat you've ever checked out, if this is the first time you're ever even encountering something like this, well, here's how this works. I've been collecting uh, questions from all corners of social media all day, all week, in fact, and compiled the most interesting 13 to hopefully give you some answers, as well as the answers of anybody in chat who has questions. Hi, chat. Hi, Twitch chat. Hi, YouTube. I hope you're doing well. Um, I look forward to any and all questions. I look forward to just doing great. Now, I do, before I forget, I do want to give the cup date, because I promised last night that the tea today would be better than the tea last night. And this most definitely is. This is Irish breakfast tea because I am desperate to perk myself up and I could honestly use something that feels comforting. And Irish breakfast tea for me is a huge comfort, especially ice cold uh, in a cold, tall glass, which is what I'm rocking today. So there's your tea update. Thanks for being here. Ladies and gentlemen, guys, gals, non-binary pals, friends, writers, makers, doers, dreamers, planners, plotters enthusiasts, hopefuls, aspirants, planners, dancers. I did dancers twice, didn't I? The scattered, the confused, the frustrated, the heartbroken, the lonely, the exhausted, the burnt out, 
the overwhelmed, the daunted, the unsure, the uncertain, anybody who's ever wondered if they're even close to going in the right direction, anybody who's ever struggled with anything that could possibly identify themselves or how they feel about themselves, or anybody who's ever had just a really long, hard day and they find themselves crying periodically, anybody who realizes that it's only Wednesday, oh God, and most importantly, the comrades, hi, it's good to have you. This one's going to be a roller coaster. I'm telling you right now, this one's a roller coaster. And if if that's not your cup of tea, I get it. It's cool. I'm going to try and throw some jokes in here. I'm going to try and throw some humor in here, uh, mainly to buoy myself. But please don't be surprised if, if we get a little heavy with some of these questions because that's just the mood I'm in. And um, I think it'll fit some of these answers. I'm looking forward to this. This is my one of my favorite parts of the entire week, and I'm I'm hoping I'm hoping this one's a good one. Let's get started. First question. Given the amount of world building inherent in the genre, is it even possible to write epic fantasy short stories? I like this question. I'm glad it came first. Originally it was not on the list, and I'm glad it got bumped up. But let's let's dissect this a little bit. Epic in epic fantasy is not epic because of the world building. Epic in epic fantasy refers to the size of the manuscript. Epic is just a word to identify that you've crossed the hundred and about a hundred to a hundred and ten thousand word count in a fantasy novel. It's a fantasy novel that's just real long. Now, one of the reasons why it's real long is often that the writer of that fantasy big giant ass book has done a lot of world building, but epic fantasy is a size issue, not a style issue. You can do epic fantasy without like, you know, page upon page, chapter upon chapter, a wealth of world building. It's not a requirement. Epic just means you wrote a hell of a lot of words. Is it possible to write epic fantasy short stories? No, no, not according to that, because epic refers to crossing the 100, 110,000 word mark, and a short story is not that. It's about half that, less than half that. But it is possible to write a fantasy short story. If you're wondering about how to like balance fantasy without a lot of world building, you'd want to focus on character, because character is going to give you more opportunity to say more things than if you were to just sit down and do, you know, a complicated, super big plot. Because big plot by itself will give you a little bit of room for description. There's some in there. You can talk about, you know, how the evil cardinal is planning to take over the throne. You're going to talk about the goons and the hench people and this, that, and the other. But it's never going to give you the same amount of narrative leverage, narrative latitude, wiggle room, creative space that following your character will. Because your character, at least normally, isn't bound and limited to only do the plot. Whereas your antagonist, that evil cardinal looking to overthrow the throne, they're sort of hemmed in by the plot. They're not in the book to do anything other than accomplish the plot. Now, how that turns into a short story, well, that's just you organizing a shorter path between A to B to, reaching, you know, to reach the plot climax and resolve it. But the epic is a manuscript-sized word. Don't let it throw you in terms of like big scope, lots of continents, lots of people, a lot of history, because that's not what it means. But it's a good question, though. It's a really good question. 
On we go to the next. Question number two. Do I always want to go for maximum emotional impact in my romance relationship between characters? Now, this came up in a session I had with somebody. We were working on their their kind of sort of romance novel, kind of sort of fiction, kind of sort of um, just personal exploration story kind of a thing. And it came up that we were talking about how to develop a relationship between two characters. And I use this analogy, and I'm going to give it to you guys here too. Sometimes when we're crafting and shaping the nature of a relationship, we want to think about French fries, not just because they're delicious, but because French fries are usually made better by the application of salt. But we are moderate with our salt. We sprinkle it on. We don't, you know, roll everything in a salt lick. We don't bury everything in salt because otherwise the fries become unpalatable. We're occasionally measured in our salt use. Now, sometimes that means some fries get less salt than others, and that's fine. But you don't always want maximum salt on every fry every time because that's that's too much salt. And after a while, everything starts to... It's like you're eating salt with a few fries sprinkled on top as opposed to eating fries with a little bit of salt sprinkled on top. Going for maximum emotional impact, the most feelings, the most hyperbole, the biggest superlatives, the longest chains, the biggest paragraphs describing how somebody feels, all stuff like that. If you always go for the maximum, the more often that happens, the less relatable something is because... Human beings, by and large, outside of like teenage love, they're not always swinging with maximum emotional impact. Sometimes it's little gestures and small things. And yeah, there's big stuff in there too, but by and large, it's, it's a mix. You don't always want to, you know, mash everything down and go like hyper 100% because you're going to lose a lot of the development when everything is always intense, especially if it's only the one character who's, you know, putting that out there and the other characters are more of a receiving position. If all I'm ever doing is hitting you with this fire hose of emotion, no matter who you are, you're going to end up overwhelmed. And as a reader, you're going to get lost in this because, oh my God, that, that relationship is so intense. And a little goes a long way at that point. So no, you don't always want to maximize your, you know, full 100,000% full speed ahead warp factor, you know, super 10, your emotional impact, because it's not about always going, you know, to the max that gives your element an emotional impact. Sometimes it's those small moments of just somebody reaching out and holding a hand or a simple declaration or a look or a single move or a single word that's going to have a thousand times more impact based on how you've developed it contextually than, you know, somebody doing this big, giant, mega romantic gesture like, I've filled a Zeppelin with roses and I'm just going to, you know, dump them over your office until you come outside or some ridiculous rom-com thing like that. You want to vary the amount of emotional impact, vary the amount of emotional effort, vary the amount of emotional motility, movement between things, so that your relationship has, instead of one flat line where everything is peaking and everything is maxed out the entire time, you want to vary that so you get some high moments, some low moments, some middle-of-the-road moments, some things that peak, some things that drop, 
so that the reader is motivated to keep going, to keep seeing how it is. Because once you establish that pattern of, I only go full throttle, no breaks. After a while, the reader gets exhausted. They start detaching from the story. They start moving on to other things. They eventually put the book down. And that's not a situation you want to get into if you're trying to build readership and get your stuff read. So no, do not always go for emotional impact. Learn sort of your own method and style. Every, every romance writer, every writer of a romance is going to develop their own sort of sense and language in terms of how they communicate romance, love, attraction, platonic interest, you know, amory of some kind or whatever. You're going to find your own way to do that. And sometimes you're not going to have to go maximum like 1 million percent because somebody's simplest gesture is their maximum. Sometimes you 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 say plenty just by looking. And being able to evaluate that and being able to understand that because you're willing to be a little introspective when it comes to your own human engagements makes a huge difference when you're crafting romance characters. So don't always go for the maximum. Go for what is functionally appropriate relative to the moment you're writing it. If it doesn't make sense for our two characters who just met a few scenes ago who have just started to sort of fumble around the idea of maybe kind of sort of we like each other. It doesn't make sense to immediately go from that to these huge professions of love because there's no in-story reason for it to be credible or believable. It's going to feel forced. It's better to develop whatever kind of relationship you're writing more organically so that it's an additive effect. We start here with the meeting you know, the meet cute, and then we interact a little bit, and then builds our romantic attraction, and we meet again, and we build a little bit more, and then we meet again, and we build a little bit more until we reach some sort of moment where we cement our relationship, whether that's physical intimacy, or we say something to each other, or we experience something together, and then it plateaus for a minute, then it continues building up, then it plateaus again, and it continues building up, and it plateaus again until we're done. If you want a really great breakdown of that specifically, uh, if you go over to the YouTube channel, you can go check out the romance stream I did where I walked right through exactly how to do that in a lot more detail than I just did for question number two. But that's where we're at. You don't want to go maximum all the time. You want to learn about that restraint and sort of controlling the accelerator. You don't always want to mash the pedal to the floor, learn to, you know, Get your foot off of it and coast a little bit. Learn to, you know, press it a little, lean in a little bit, but also be able to pull back. And that comes through writing multiple drafts. That comes through getting critique and feedback. That's not something I would expect somebody to have an innate handle on right away. And it's okay if you don't. It's okay if you do, but it's okay if you don't because you can always improve it by continuing to write. Just don't only go a 1,000 miles an hour. That's all I ask because otherwise the relationship is never going to feel developed. On we go to the next question. Question number three. Why shouldn't every writer blog or have a newsletter? Here's where we're going to get a little spicy, cathartic, emotional ranty. Ready? Here we go. Not every writer needs to do that or has to have that because not every writer has the chops to do it. If you are somebody who is fundamentally struggling just to work through finishing your first draft, if you are somebody who is really, really struggling to understand the rudiments of story and you're just having a hard time getting your own shit done, 
adding more writing to your writing to-do list is not going to incentivize you or encourage you to do any kind of additional improved work. It's just going to add more shit to your plate. Not everybody's going to be cut out for blogging and newsletter production. I understand that it's a very popular trend. I understand that it's the new hot thing the way blogs used to be the old new hot thing and now newsletters. And then soon it's going to be TikToks and soon it's going to be, you know, different forms of social media and this and, and combined efforts in social media. That's where we're sort of heading now. But you can still be a writer who publishes books and makes sales without going through these hoops that you see everybody else doing. Yes. Yes, hang on. I know. I know there are loads of people adjacent to the writing space who are trying to tell you how critical it is. And it just so happens that they're selling you a course on how to build a blog or build a newsletter. And isn't it convenient that you thinking about struggling with your newsletter found this person who's talking about, you know, for a couple hundred dollars, they'll make you a better newsletter writer. Isn't that interesting how you just sort of came to the same spot at roughly the same time. It's almost like they were looking for you. But all the same, if you are having trouble doing the writing, if you are not in a place or a position to sit down and consistently produce that work and consistently iterate on it and effort in it, and it's just, for whatever reason, life is happening. It's hard. You don't like it. You, you're You're not really working with a number of support structures in place. It's just a difficult thing you're slogging your way through and you haven't yet hit that moment of pride or ego collapse or a moment of somewhat surrender so that you can turn around and ask for help that's going to make a difference. You haven't gotten there yet. So you're going to just bully your way through, lower your shoulder and just kind of muscle through the writing, even though ultimately what you're doing is hurting your long-term writing prospects because you're going to constantly associate this amount of work with writing. So it's always going to be difficult for you. So you're going to find reasons not to do it. And then you're going to burn out until, until we get to that sort of crossroads adding more things to your writer list, giving you this sense of, Oh God, there's so much more I have to do. It's only going to add frustration. Now, when we combine that possible frustration with the idea that if you're having trouble writing some fiction, you're going to have a hell of a hard time coming up with ways to talk about that fiction you're struggling to write, because what are you going to put in a newsletter? Oh my God, it's day 622 of me having a real hard time writing chapter five. That's not the point. That's not going to help anybody. That's not going to grow an audience. That's not going to help you build connection. It's not going to help you feel better about your progress. It's not going to help you be a better writer of chapter 10 when you're doing, you know, the next steps. You don't have to blog and you don't have to have a newsletter because some people just aren't cut out for that kind of talking about their work. Now, hang on. That doesn't excuse you from having to do some kind of marketing. That doesn't excuse you from having to be able to talk about your work at all. It just means that these avenues, blog and newsletter, are not suited for you. But you have to have some kind of avenue where you're going to get the word out in a way that isn't just like the five friends you talk to on Facebook. You need an open avenue where more people can come in and interact and possibly buy the book. Unless you're just aiming for like, I want to sell a book to my friends and when that's done, I'm done. But if you're looking to be bigger than just your friend circle, 
you are going to need that outlet where you can talk to people about your work, which means you're going to need to eventually develop some kind of skill in talking about your work. Now, a lot of writers get real nervous or upset about this, so they, they make it one of these back burner things like, oh, man, I'll get to it. I'll get to it later when I'm, when I'm doing better. Later, 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 later. When, and they keep finding reasons and time to put it off because really what they're afraid of is they're, they're afraid of the possibility of failure. And they're afraid of the possibility that it won't work. So the best way to guarantee that they don't have to contend or try with that failure is they never even start. Because if I never start, there's no way I can fail. And that kind of playing small, that kind of, you know, simple safety sounds great. It's a great way to insulate you. It's a great way to, you know, make sure you never have to take a big try or risk anything. But at the same time, all the success you swear you want is on the other side of you trying that thing. Now, if blogging and newslettering, newsletter-tearing, if communicating via blog and newsletter are not your thing, you need to find what your thing is. Because it's not, I hate to tell you this, it's just not going to be like my five friends on Discord or the three people I chat with on Facebook Messenger. It's not. That's not enough. There's a whole big world out there. And if you keep talking about how you want to be a successful writer, you've got to find a way to build a bridge to that world. And if the whole idea of that is really daunting to you, maybe kind of sort of juggle maybe your idea in and around what you trying to accomplish with writing. But blogging and newslettering are just tools. They're tools in the toolbox. If you don't want to dig them, that's cool but there will be other tools and you're going to have to engage with it, which means you're going to have to be brave and try or be even braver and recognize that this is not what you should be trying at all. And the writing is more of a hobby than a productive goal. Good question. Now I do have a question in chat evening, John. I hope you had a good day. I have not had a good day, but I appreciate your enthusiasm. My question, how's my Star Trek Discovery watch going? That's something I'm doing on Patreon. I have to tell you I'm a few episodes behind, mainly because I focused on The Last of Us because that, that was wrapping up. How's my Star Trek Discovery watch going? I'm behind. But overall, it's, it's going. From a story perspective, is there anything you like or dislike about the show so far? There's a lot more I dislike than I like. And for me, now, I understand that whenever you talk about Star Trek Discovery specifically, a lot of people will tell you, oh, John, it gets better in the other seasons. And that's probably true. That's, that's, not, an un, that's, that's not a bad thing to say. However, I'm specifically looking at the first season when it isn't the show yet that it's going to become. And it is packed with problems, or at least I can't say problems because the show clearly aired. It was clearly successful because it went on to have other seasons. But there are definite red flags for me that make the show um, a bit less narratively successful than it could have been. And I know I'm I'm armchair quarterbacking or I'm armchair, I'm captain's chair backseat driving on this, I guess. But my fundamental problem, especially with the first half of the first season, is that the show is going out of its way as frequently as possible to constantly tell me that the main character is special. 
And there's nothing wrong with having a very special main character, but I don't need to be reminded of that character's specialness at every opportunity. I'm not dumb. I understand that if you've told me for the first two episodes, the extended pilot, that the character is special, and then we move on, and the show progresses based on that character being special, you don't have to keep telling me the character is special. The only reason we're in the circumstances from episode three onward is because the character is special, and I don't expect that to change. So the over-reliance on, and how did I put this on Patreon? The very special, ultra-magical, super-de-duper-good main character. If you have to beat me over the head with how great and cool the main character is, it's sort of like being at a party and keep and telling everybody you're cool. You're not actually cool. So my, my main problem with it is the main character is getting shoved down my throat. Rather than, and repeating one element, oh my God, this character, Michael Burnham is so special. Michael Burnham is great. Michael Burnham could do this and should do that. But really, this one bad thing happened. Michael Burnham, Michael Burnham, Michael Burnham. Repeating the same element is not the same as developing a character. Because if I just tell you, like, I really like, you know, tea, and I just keep telling you that I like tea the entire time you and I communicate, you're not getting a sense that I like anything else. You're not seeing any of the other dimensions to me. We, we're not talking about root beer. We're not talking about grape soda or orange soda or candy or bottled water or fruit or small meals or pizzas or big meals or art or music or anything. We're just focused on this one element. And in part, that's my fault as the example of the material, the media in this case. So I'm the show in this example. It's my fault for constantly like only giving you this one element, but it's also a little bit the receiver's fault for not being more open to a show that's willing to do better than a one-dimensional character. Star Trek Discovery, for me, in principle, the idea should be discovery. It's in the title. And what they should be discovering isn't just, you know, a bold new way to trek some stars. It should be character discovery. It should be the main character learning about themselves. It should be everybody learning something. The science guy learns some science stuff with his boyfriend from Rent. The, the secondary characters learn the value of working together as a crew. And the main character could learn the very valuable lessons of like, hey, I'm not a giant piece of shit because of the events of the pilot. I'm actually really competent, but I'm intending to go my own way. There should be discovery in a show called Discovery. Past that, is there anything I like? Yes, I'm surprised to say there is. The secondary cast, the supporting characters, the captain, the head of security, the even the best friend character, um, all of them are great. Even the token alien is great. Um, I wish they had more development just collectively as characters so that they weren't all a different one-dimensional character type. Oh, he's strong but silent. He's a renegade. He's, you know, the alien. She's really funny. You know, I wish they had some more depth to them, but they're enjoyable because of how close to the trope they are. 
But when you take that and you partner it with this main character that I'm just getting clubbed in the face with, the show becomes a bit of a slog. And one of the reasons why I pulled back on watching it somewhat, and I'm going to end up having to sit down and do like three episodes at once, probably over the weekend. One of the reasons I pulled back was because it's just, it's monotonous. It's just, even though the, the adventures of the week are different and distinct, which is good and it's what you should aim for, it always ends up getting resolved by the same sort of three elements. Our main character is super and special, or the problem really wasn't much of a problem, or, you know, science. And it's pick one of those three or take any two of those three, and you'll figure out how to wrap up a first season episode. And that's fine. Like, it's not the end of the world that your science fiction show goes that way. But the longer we go into repeating this formula and telling me all the things I already know, the farther away we're getting from Star Trek's Star Trekness. It doesn't feel very Star Trek. Yes, we're wearing the insignias. Yes, we have phasers. Yes, it's got this weird amalgam of the like the J.J. Abrams reboot series, but also like the the sleeker technology and stuff of later iterations of Star Trek shows. But at the same time, it's playing pretend with its Star Trekness. It's it's not quite Star Trek. It's not quite a Trek and it's not quite a star. It's it's I think I said in one of the early episodes that it, it felt like watching a little kid play dress up in their mommy and daddy's closet. Because it's trying to do some of the Star Trek stuff, but it's not committing to it because if they have to commit to it, they don't get an opportunity to tell you that your main character is magically super duper delicious. And I just wish, I just wish it would push more. And apparently in the later seasons it does, but I just, man, I just wish they started doing that a little sooner. Because that first season so far has been like, one of my least favorite things to deal with on a weekly basis. And that's saying something because there's plenty of uncomfortable, unpleasant stuff. But to like those 46 minutes of, oof, how are we going to deal with it now? That's a rough one. What a great question. Thank you so much for asking it. I don't know if, if, if anybody else is there and has questions, by all means, fire away. L, I feel like I rambled for like 10 minutes on that. Anybody else has any questions, you know, feel free, else we will march on. All right. We're moving on. What can we, question number four, what can we do as artists to curtail the flood of AI writing from tech bros and productivity grifters. Okay. Okay. I'm going to deal with this in two ways. We're going to talk about individual actions, people, singular people, what we can do is as individuals who make stuff. And then what we can do as a collective. And I'm starting with the individual because I believe the most Critical action comes from individual because if I just say do this collectively, it's vague and hand wavy and it doesn't really go anywhere. So what you can do as a specific person is make a concerted effort 
to avoid any and all temptation from engaging with AI material. Because it's out there. There's, you know, more and more things are talking about how uh, AI, by the way, is also sometimes written out as machine learning or machine algorithm. It's the same thing. So you can make an effort to not use it. And the the siren call of it and the, the way people talk about it in terms of like, it can help you do X, Y, and Z. No, it's not really helping you do those things. It's doing those things for you by exploiting somebody else. Oh, I like using AI art because it helps me get my thinking going. It helps me, you know, fire up my imagination. No, it doesn't. It appropriates other people's already existing art and then hodgepodges it together with no sense of credit for the people who actually did the hard work, and then it displays it to you, and because it's new to you, you feel inspired. When instead, since it's your imagination, you could be responsible for firing it up by thinking about things just with your own brain. So what you can do, the greatest thing you can do to kind of curtail the flood is to not contribute to it. If you know, the house is burning down. Please don't throw more gasoline in the living room. Get away from the fire. So what step number one you can do as an individual is get away from the AI. I don't care about the wonderful claims of Bard or ChatGPT, what are they, four now? Like, I don't, I don't care. I don't care if they promise me an AI who will finally love and understand me as a human. They can come along with a machine that will absolutely address every single one of my issues. Delightful. Promise me millions of more things. Because ultimately, at the end of the day, it doesn't help me write my book. Because my story is mine. My art is mine to create. Individually, beyond that, you can make a concerted, outspoken effort to... Make it clear that you make your own shit and no AI is involved in its production. Now, that might seem a little performative. And in some cases, some people have taken it that way. However, it's at least important to know that you are willing to not compromise on this point. Now, have I looked at, at ChatGPT? Have I tried it? I tried it once and it over fucking whelmed me. Because all of a sudden, here's this thing that was not the computer from Star Trek. It was not, you know, able to give me everything in Mrs. Roddenberry's voice. It was telling me just kind of the same 15 pieces of information in the sort of the same structure. And I was very clearly speaking to a canned thing. And then when I would ask it a more in-depth question... It would tell me that because of how it's coded or made it, it couldn't answer me that, which usually I took as a sign of like, oh, well, it's it's penned in and it's only limited and it's not gaining that leverage for sentience that all the conspiracy theorists are scared of. So as an individual, don't engage with it. Stay true to yourself. Produce your own art. That might seem old-fashioned because you get a million tech bros and productivity scam people telling you, like, AI is going to help you automate. Here are five websites that are going to help you save time. Of course, they all have prices and subscriptions. They don't tell you that part. But they're trying to tell you that AI is the future. And for some things, it's going to be. 
I mean, it's going to, half the workforce is going to get lost to it. And we're not prepared capitalistically to deal with that. And we're certainly not going to deal with that because that would mean being compassionate. And AI is devoid of compassion. So in order to curtail the flood, the other thing you can do as an individual is be compassionate. Support other writers. Support people who are doing things and making things without the assistance of AI. So if that means, you know, throwing $2 at a Patreon, patreon.com slash John helps you write better. Or if that means throwing a few bucks at a, at a small subscription object, like a, an enamel pin made by an artist you like, do it. Do it. Because that's how we're going to stop AI getting everywhere. We're going to demonstrate that there is more than a more than a niche, more than like a few people huddled in the corner while everybody else is out playing with the big new toy. It's not like three weirdos in the corner of the lunchroom. It's a concerted effort to push back against it. As a collective, what we can do is absolutely make sure that our art, our books, our pictures, our films, our screenplays, our stage plays, our Etsy shops, our whatever it is we're making, far and away exceed what an AI can do. We make it clear to the consumers that human art is human art. It's not just made for us by us. But it's more than that. It's, it's, a, it's accomplishing and iterating and developing emotionally in a way that a machine can only be factual or clinical about. Because you're not going to stop the tech bros. They are like locusts. They will come along and dive bomb a field. And now that crypto has more or less functionally collapsed into a series of impending lawsuits, they've moved on to AI. And when AI gets choked out under the urgency of capitalism and they move on to the next thing, which is probably more AI or, I don't know, hand job robots or something, then they'll move on to the next thing because the tech bro and the productivity grifter alike constantly have to serve you content in order for you to stay relevant to them and for them to profit off your attention span. So as long as you don't indulge that, as long as you don't give into that, you'll do just fine. Other than that, whenever possible, call out a tech bro, call out a grifter. You know, if you are someone unwilling to, you know, deal with a more hands-on direct action approach to things, which is fine, if that's not possible or feasible, then do it digitally and do it virtually. Don't just shop with you, make your decisions with your wallet because that's capitalism talking. We're time to go past that now, brothers and sisters. What we need to be doing here is saying, hey, you're full of shit. This plan sucks. This is wrong. What you're doing is unethical, immoral, and exploitative. And I would appreciate if you're going to not stop to do it way the fuck away from me. And if we did that over and over, and we let the little fuck boys and the tech bros and the grifters go off to the little island of misfit capitalists, we could go back to producing the stuff that fills us with joy. Because this is the battle line. We can either go fully into capitalism and the demise of a civilization, or we can make art and lift ourselves out of the hole we put ourselves in. 
Which do you want to do? Question number five. Apparently, we're continuing this trend of John's going to talk about major things. Question number five. Is the monomyth, you know, Joseph Campbell, useful or harmful for writers? Okay. Yes. The answer is yes. It is useful in some cases for some writers as a framework. It helps them organize a story. Now, not all stories fit that construction. You can't, you know, get everything to fit into the same template. But for some kinds of stories to accomplish some kinds of ends, it can be a useful tool in the same way that for my screenwriting friends, sometimes, but not always, you can use something like Save the Cat. It's a tool in the toolbox. It should not be your only tool. Now, how is it harmful? Those are the uses. In some cases, for some stories, it's good. However, when is it harmful? Aside from the obvious of all the other cases where it doesn't apply, it's also harmful because when it becomes broadly applied, the monomyth has fundamental lack and development that require subsequent iterations in order to develop. So if we go look at Star Wars, like the original trilogy, we don't learn a lot about Luke outside of the impact that the death of his aunt and uncle have. We don't get to learn about Luke's sense of fear until we get to the sequel. We don't get to learn about Luke's sense of struggle to overcome the possibility of the, the specter of not knowing his father until you get deep into the extended universe. The monomyth is great for imparting some structure. It is not necessarily the best thing to give you more depth. It can be a starting point. It can be something we take a look at, but ultimately we don't need to go every single step in the monomyth. Just like we don't need to go every single step in the story circle or every single step in the story grid or every single step of the snowflake pattern or every single step of the beat sheet. You can tell a story in lots of different ways without slavishly and blindly adhering to a template because some stories go in directions and go in directions to certain degrees that adherence to the monomyth, adherence to the idea of rejecting the call and entering the cave and finding the mentor and losing the mentor and going over here and overcoming the obstacle is boring as shit. It's just plain dull after a while because some stories don't have a mentor and they're plenty impactful. And some stories don't reject the call because rejecting the call is counterintuitive to the trajectory of the character arc. But the monomyth and Campbell... Nazi, really make it sound like it's the best thing to do because it's created much like Jordan Peterson's adherence to Jungian archetypes. Of course you can make everything look like that. If you have one particular view, every Rorschach implot looks like a butterfly or two walruses humping. If you go in with a preconceived notion, you will find what you're looking for. And when you do that, you're no longer producing art. You are stamping widgets out of the widget factory. Yes, Campbell was a Nazi. Ugh. Moving beyond that, you don't want to stamp widgets. You want to create art. The monomyth is not a tool for generating new art. The monomyth is a tool for homogenizing art. Do we want to homogenize or do we want to develop? Monomyth is useful in some cases when a little, you know, homogeneous sameness I can never figure out how to pronounce that word when the sameness is good I can spell it I just can't say it 
when you're looking to have things follow in line and set up certain things, totally, absolutely, it's delightful. However, if you're looking to do a new thing, if you're looking to push in a new direction, if you're looking to push past this, if you're looking to grow a story and really push yourself, the monomyth is something you need to yeet into the sun because it doesn't always apply to every story. Would you like two examples of stories that are not monomythic templated? Two stories where the monomyth doesn't work? The first season of Atlanta? And, hmm, how about we do... Oh, uh, let's, let's find a really good one. Oh, I know, John Wick. Because I just saw a trailer for that. The monomyth is not necessarily the best structure to use. It's just a structure. Are certain genre authors more prone to think the monomyth is useful? Yes. People writing in fantasy and science fiction spaces get the monomyth thrown at them as though it is the panacea, the solution to all their problems and the great cure-all for every ill they have because generally some of the more successful movies followed some degree of the monomyth template. Everybody wants to write a big giant space opera with wizards and laser swords because Star Wars did real well. Everybody wants to tell a pretty typical King Arthur, pull the sword out of the stone, have a prophecy and do something. I'm a faded magic boy story because King Arthur and other stories like it did real well. Monomyth is great for a certain kind of story. It is not the be all end all and making those minor flips like, ha ha, my protagonist is female or my protagonist is, you know, does not identify in the gender spectrum is is not enough of an, of an iteration to step away from the monomyth. You've basically like just changed the color shirt someone is wearing. You have not gotten away from the monomyth. But sci-fi and fantasy is ripe, overripe, with people using the monomyth as the only true template. And anytime you get into a one true Scotsman debate, you are bound to be disappointed. But yeah, it's it's... You know where you don't see the monomyth? You don't see the monomyth in romance. And romance seems to be a fairly successful genre. Gee, I wonder why that is. If the monomyth is so great, why don't we have a monomyth for romance? Hmm, I wonder. Could it be perhaps because some stories are not well suited to the singular progression of one character in a semicycle? I don't know. But yeah, I don't like the monomyth. Not real crazy about Save the Cat either. Again, it forces everything into like very boxy construction and sameness after a while. Things feel stale. They don't feel iteration. Does romance have its own version of the monomyth? I, I guess, but I'm not aware that it has a singular label. There's no like, there's no Joseph, to the best of my knowledge, there is no Joseph Campbell for romance. There's, there's, there's not some old white dude who got together and was like, look, ladies, I'll tell you how to write them romance kissing books and then sit down and dictate an overly rigid formula grounded in like snotty English education in order to accomplish its ends. But usually the typical monomyth sort of a thing for romance has to do with, you know, somebody who's successful in business, but is somehow physically clumsy and then they meet, uh, 
like a guy who's generally got stubble or a motorcycle or abs and a troubled backstory. And then at some point it rains and they meet each other and it's tender and then they kiss and they know they shouldn't have kissed, but then they realize that his backstory is the reason why they can't get together. So things progress forward. And next thing you know, they're in this full blown sexual relationship, but then his, his backstory shows up and that creates complication. And then they have to resolve that by her growing for some reason, even though it's his backstory. And then they both grow as people a little bit. Maybe they fall apart along the way and realize they have to get back together and then ultimately they do and she wins in the end hooray but that's for romance how does the monomyth intersect with the hero's journey it's the same thing they are synonyms the monomyth is the hero's journey it's the idea that it, it moves in this one direction hero's journey is just the casual name for casual hero journey friday it's where you get to wear jeans as you go on your noble quest and you find your wizard mentor, who's usually a British actor, who will end up dying about two-thirds of the way through the story. Or two-thirds of the way through the series, if you're writing a series. But you got to kill your mentor. Because that's the only way your hero knows that they'll have to stand on their own two feet and believe in themselves. Because normally, in order to... So what that does, now I'm just irritated. So what that does when you kill your mentor is it suggests that there is no further knowledge to be gained, which means there's no additional growth the character is going to undergo. I've learned everything the old wise person needed to teach me. And then you either have to go out of your way to justify that, oh no, there's secret knowledge. And then it just becomes a MacGuffin hunt. Or you have to kind of freeze the character to some degree. So they're never going to grow in the same way that they were growing in the first story because you've, you've, you've paralyzed them. You've frozen it. If you want a better example of a non-hero, a non-monomythic hero journey, that it's a little on the nose, but it's really, really accurate because it's not all wins and it's not all perfect. The original Rocky you'll learn a lot about how to craft a hero based on Rocky. Just the first one. I know the later ones go in places and, and he fights communism. I know it's a whole fucking thing, but that first movie, ultimately it's a guy who's just wanting to believe in himself. That's generally not the hero's journey because usually the hero's journey only works if they already believe in themselves and they just need a chance to prove it. Oh, golly gee shucks. So yeah, that's the monomyth. And yes, uh, Luke Skywalker in jeans is an incredibly like pleasant thing. Like I'm a totally cool, chill wizard who everybody on the internet thinks I should have been more badass. I wear jeans now. That's what I do. On we go to the next question. Question number six. Good grief, you guys. You know, when I put all this stuff together, I was not having a really bad day. But you guys are just, I, we're, I've grabbed a handkerchief just in case sniffling happens. How do I know this draft is the best I can do and that I shouldn't write another draft? All right. Come here. Come here. You're never going to know. You are never going to know. And the important thing isn't that you know or don't know, it's that you learn that that's not the most important question to ask. It doesn't matter if you could write another draft, because you always could. 
it's important that you reach a point, and we talked about this a little bit yesterday with the, the goals section of the, the second draft stream. The important thing for you to realize and recognize is that while you totally absolutely could keep writing other future drafts until the cold death of the universe, you've got to reach a point where you are comfortable with what you've written. Now, for some people, that might never happen. Their anxiety, their fear, their fear of rejection, their fear of success, their fear of confusion, their fear of loss, their fear of their, their risk aversion, their whatever their fear might never let them get to a point where they're genuinely okay with stuff. That's me. I'm, 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 uh, what is, what's the one line? Um, bitches love that stuff. I'm, that's me. I'm bitches. Uh, that's me. I'm the guy who never lets, it's never okay. There's always another thing I could do. There's always another way I could do a thing. I, I could just keep trying because I'm afraid to fail and I'm afraid to try. So I play small and I hold myself back and it is killing me. And I never know if the thing I did today is the best I could do. I don't know if this chat's the best I could do. I'm watching a counter of people, and I'm noticing that it is shockingly not triple digits, so I'm assuming this is not the best I could do. And I, I'm i going to go spend the rest of the night kicking myself that it's not, you know, like a thousand fucking people in here. There could be. There should be. I could talk to a thousand people. I like people. I'm good at this. But I know I could always do better. I know I could always try again. The problem is that if I do that, I'm never getting anywhere. I'm never pressing the go live button. I'm going to be constantly thinking about, okay, I got to get this done. I could do this. I could rewrite this. I could say this differently. Let me go back and do question number one again. I'll never get anywhere. You have to reach a point and it's hard. It's so hard to do. You have to reach a point where, yeah, you could do more work, but where you're at and the skill level you're at at that time is enough so that you don't want to, even if you think you could. Like answering this question, I could probably do an entire two hours just on this question. I know I could because I've done 15 minutes on it in several different chats. We could stitch it all together, get two hours. If I sat down and didn't have any other questions, at one point this was just going to be like a seven-question chat. It's not. There's 13 questions. But I could, I could go for a while on this because having that fear and having that sense of I don't want to lose and I don't want to be hurt and I don't want to struggle anymore is corrosive. It's pervasive. It's everywhere. It's It's the worst kind of sewage sludge to wade around in because it just clings to you and you never feel free of it. I don't know if the draft you're writing person who asked me this question, who I know is listening, I don't know if the draft you're currently writing or the draft you just wrote is the best you can do. I know it's better than the draft you did the other, you know, the last time we talked about your draft. But I don't know if it's like the best, best ever because I don't really know if anybody ever does their best, best ever without a long life behind them. But if this draft is the best you can do right now, 
relative to where your experience is, relative to where you are in your development as a writer, relative to where you are in terms of your mood, in terms of your anxiety, in terms of your fear, in terms of your courage, in terms of your strength, in terms of everything else. If it's the best you can do right now and going back and changing it all or changing part of it or changing so little of it or changing something would just be an exercise in renaming Tim into Kevin or making a blonde lady a redhead or something. It would be cosmetic rather than, you know, definitive. You don't necessarily need to do that. Yes, you do have to learn what good enough is. The problem is that for so many of us with really heavy anxiety and rejection-sensitive dysphoria, the idea of enough is always a label we're willing to cede to other people. I want you to tell me what enough is, and then I'll try and get there so that I don't have to be wrong by possibly choosing the wrong definition for myself. That's why we all struggle with good enough. Totally simple concept, super not easy. That's why I'm in therapy now four days a week. It's a lunch, probably be five, frankly, but it's, it is what it is. So I can't tell you, even from a professional standpoint, I can't tell you that you shouldn't write another draft. Maybe you should, but if it's not going to get you the same kind of growth that moving forward would, don't do it. But I think for a lot of people who ask this question, I think for a lot of people who wonder if what they're writing so far is good enough when they're not done the draft. Because this question is totally different if we're talking about a finished thing versus like I'm only 10, 20 pages in. If you're still in the middle of writing, keep going. Keep writing. You don't necessarily have to stop and then revisit your first five pages three times before you go write page six. That's a that's a great, really an exercise in just never finishing. But if yours not done yet, Work up to the point where you finish it. If, however, you're done and you're looking backwards and you're immediately being critical so that on some level other people won't have a chance to be critical because you're already doing the work for them, you're already telling yourself and pointing out all your failings so that when other people you assume do it, uh, it won't sting or hurt so much. Um, that's, that's a wrestling match you have to have with yourself. Is it helpful to ask how that draft will be different than this one if better is not a good answer? Um, it can be because that, that will at least tell you that your possible answers are superficial. Oh, I'm going to change this person's name. I'm going to make this guy an extra two inches taller. The, the changes you would make from draft to draft are minor unless you wholesale go like way far out. I'm going to add another twin or something and it comes out of left field and it feels really out of place. That's where you know that the changes you would make and the changes you would make and the reason you'd think they need to be made aren't necessarily grounded in producing better product. Cuz if you're just throwing shit in there because oh I ooh, ooh, I could add this, I could do that, you're not making decisions. And writing is the act of making decisions. You're getting away from that by constantly just tossing more stuff in. There comes a point where you stop adding stuff and you start refining the stuff you have. When you learn to, you know, at what point you determine the stop point is, when enough is enough and then you move on, that's for everybody to individually say.
and everybody to individually do. Which sucks. Because if you're like me, you're somebody who's constantly worrying about, oh God, I got a text message. Maybe there's a problem or, oh God, this is happening. Maybe this is wrong. Oh no, I haven't, I haven't heard anything or done anything. I haven't gotten an email back. I haven't gotten an invoice. I haven't done this and I haven't done that. You're looking for that constant raw nerve. So like a canker sore in your mouth, you can poke it with your tongue because it's there. It's a hard thing to grapple with. It's a real hard thing to grapple with. But everybody's got to grapple with it on their own terms. Are there any questions from anybody here about anything? They were not, we were nice enough to start off by talking about Star Trek Discovery. Any questions? Like, am I bummed that I'm not going to cover Cocaine Bear for Patreon? Yes. I am legit bummed. I might do it anyway just for the upper tiers. But I, I was kind of bummed. Because I like doing goofy movies sometimes. But are there any questions from anybody here? The tea, Oh, you missed the cup date. The tea tonight is Irish breakfast tea. Ice cold in a, like, uh, a real frosty pint glass. Because that is one of my comfort teas. Now, granted, it is like hella caffeinated. And it is currently 8 p.m. Eastern time. So I'm going to vibrate my way um, vibrate my way into another universe. But it will at least manage my anxiety to some degree. So it's delightful. Uh, love it. Love it so much. I don't like it with lemon. No, no, it doesn't have sugar. I'm trying to be healthy, damn it. I'm trying to like reduce the amount of sugar in my face. No, there's no, put sugar in. Now, if it was hot, if I was doing hot tea in a mug, a little bit of sugar, like a third of a teaspoon, like, but if we're doing cold, nah, just pour that shit in a glass. I know exactly why you asked, you southerner. Um, when working through a long project and things start to lose steam, is it worth it to switch to a shorter project as Asimov or Pratchett would? Well, okay, I'm going to say a thing, and you're going to probably think I'm being a smartass, but there's value in me saying this. Are you Isaac Asimov or Terry Pratchett? If you are Terry Pratchett, dude, I'm confused. Also, Isaac Asimov, he's dead too. Um, so, yeah, if you are those people, then doing what they did will work. However... If you are switch, if you are losing steam in a long project, and that steam isn't so, let's divide that steam up, right? If you're doing a long thing and you're just tired from doing it consistently and you need a break, take a break, take a day off. I know that's apparently like I should get a gasp button, um, because it's not quite like a. And I need a gasp. I, I really need a gasp in here. But the idea being, um, if if you're running out of steam because you're just tired, take a day off. I know that'll mess up your schedule, maybe. I know that it might affect a deadline. It might mean you have to do more work on another day. But if the issue is I'm losing steam because I'm just tired, rest. It's okay. You need to. Take care of yourself because you're not going to be able to finish this thing if you, if you destroy yourself in the process. 
if you're losing steam on a long project because you're unsure of what to do next and you're feeling overwhelmed because there's so many things to do, that's a that's an organizational problem. That's a sit down and figure out what my next steps are problem. And you've got to make the steps smaller rather than say, okay, I got to write 50,000 words and finish out act two. That's huge and ridiculous. And I would not expect anybody to have a healthy, you know, non-frustration response to that. But if you turn it around and go, okay, I have to write the scene where this character says this thing to this other character and stop there, make smaller steps. You've started to reposition and recontrol that effort because you, now you've taken some of the overwhelm out of it. If you're losing steam because the idea is too big and you haven't like thought it through yet. And you, you've been writing somewhat by the seat of your pants and you got to turn around and like make some concrete. I don't know what happens on the next chapter. Well, sit down and figure out what happens on the next chapter, but that doesn't mean sit down and figure it out as you write it. It means take a day, take a couple hours, take a weekend, take a whatever away from the act of typing and sit down and make those decisions. Some people sometimes decide what they want to do is jump from a one thing to another thing because they don't want to, I'm going to make air quotes, lose the momentum of writing. And what that means and what that's talking about is the idea that I've built this habit that I have to do something. I have to write. The specific thing I am writing is somewhat immaterial to this. It doesn't matter if I'm writing my short story or my romance novel or my fantasy story or whatever. I just have to write. That's not necessarily bad or wrong. However, and this is a sizable cautionary thing I'm, I'm going to bring up, be careful that you don't let your shorter project, whatever it might be, become more attention-seeking and more of a time sink and more of a black hole than the main project you're intending to and supposed to be working on. Don't let your alternate, uh, what's the word, depose, uh, boot out the primary project. A lot of people do. You know, they feel reinvigorated all of a sudden because it's new. Oh my God, this is going great. I started writing and it just kept going. And all of a sudden I've got this new surge of adrenaline and this new surge of creativity. That's because you're no longer holding yourself to the expectations and the stress and the pressure you had with the previous project. But eventually we're going to have to go back to that project. Now, maybe this second replacement project is just what you need. It keeps you writing. It keeps you moving. And the skills you gain in doing it, you can immediately apply to your first one. I don't know. The only way we're going to find that out is by you writing them. It's hard to know. Is it worth it? For some people it is. Sometimes it is. Try it and then let me know. That's the best answer I can give you. However, if you are Isaac Asimov or Terry Pratchett, dude, I thought you were dead. And if not, were you hanging out with Tupac? Because I don't think he's dead either. But that's probably a different chat with a different question. I hope that answers your question, by the way. On we go. Question seven. What did The Last of Us do right? This is specifically the television show. What did The Last of Us, the television show, 
do right when it comes to writing dystopias. So I talked about this when we talked about Star Trek Discovery, what feels like three years ago. Um, I've been covering The Last of Us for Patreon. And everything was great until we get to the finale. And I think the finale didn't, it didn't do what I was expecting and it didn't do what I wanted it to do. It was good for what it was, but compared to some of the other things we've looked at and some of the other things we've talked about, I expected based on other episodes of the show, I expected it to do more and do better and do something. And it didn't. And that, that kind of sucked. But overall, those nine episodes did a lot right when it comes to crafting a dystopia because the fundamental rule made very clear by the television show The Last of Us is that the worst part of the zombie apocalypse are the people. The zombies are not really a, a, a fixture in this thing. You'd go whole episodes without them. Or maybe you'd see like one remotely over there in the distance but they weren't the predominant threat. The predominant threat was almost always somebody who was trying to maintain power in whatever situation they were in, be it power in terms of leadership or power in terms of a cult or a gang or an armed unit of people or whatever. The worst part of this was people. And I think that's the real strength of the television show. Because there were also times where the best thing about the dystopia were the people. And understanding that a dystopia with a gimmick, because zombies in a zombie apocalypse are a gimmick, because we can swap zombies out for vampires or ghosts or large scary birds or something, or dinosaurs. It's just an item, fill in the blank. It's a gimmick. If you're able to make the central points of your story without relying on the gimmick. You are crafting a much deeper, a deeper exploration of character than if we were just wondering about, Oh my God, how many zombies are there going to be in this episode to build a dystopia like that, to build a story element like that. You have to understand and get your head around the idea of the true worst case of everything. And how does it affect the characters on their most individual core levels? The reason why it hurts so much is because we come to know the characters as people-ish. Not everybody and not all the time. But because we, are, we address them fundamentally as people with backstories and efforts and wants and dreams. And for the most part, they can act it out really well, for the most part then you really get a sense of understand what really matters and what we can really manipulate in terms of threat or danger or risk. Beyond that, it's just a gimmick. And one of the faults in crafting a story like that is when you suddenly throw the, the zombies back in the mix, they feel really incidental. Like, oh, zombie, right. Oh, right, it's a zombie apocalypse, sure. But it had been a long time since we saw zombies because we were too busy staring at those guys. Uh, the thing The Last of Us did right was 
put someone else's great ideas to good use in a different context, which is most of writing. That's a fairly jaded way of putting it, but I understand what you're saying. Um, yes, it was somebody else's idea and it was recontextualized into a new medium. Sure. Um, I don't think that's enough though. I think it's more a matter of, cause the show did other things. The show did things the game didn't. And I think that was necessary. But the problem is once it does that, once you get, I think it was episode three once you get an episode three where you're developing two new characters and a whole new situation and we're giving a shit about them for 49 minutes once you show that you're capable of doing that you're setting the bar and if you never go back and try to clear that bar again or match it or do that same level to something else everything starts to fall apart because it really feels like you peaked and then we still had two-thirds of the season to go that was my issue with The Last of Us. But in terms of a dystopia, it found the formula and it found the, the functional core parts were not the gimmick, but the way people reacted and responded. And then it built your story around that. That's what The Last of Us did, right? Question eight. Why haven't, on, why haven't anthologies gotten more popular? Production reasons. Um, typically... The people who make the most anthologies don't pay very well. And their topics and their constraints are not very firm. So you get a lot of mediocre writing that seems to be kind of sort of disjointed. And it's generally not well crafted and it's just sort of slapped together. Now, is that true of every anthology? No. But there's a whole wealth of anthologies put out by very small presses and very small writing groups and very small writing communities that perpetuate more of the bad writer habits than the good ones. And when you combine elements of poor pay in different production, weak elements and weak setup, you end up with a meh level text. And if that's what you want to have represent you, yeah, we put out an anthology, but it, it's just it's just okay. If you're if that's what you're going for, great, cool, awesome, love it. I hope it does well for you. But the reason why anthologies haven't become more big and dynamic things isn't because oh well they just need a big name to anchor them. It's because their overall level of organization has fallen off. The pay is abysmal. The, or the constraints and the boundaries aren't rigid. The editing and proofing and formatting aren't strict enough. There's not enough rejection. There's not enough, you know, take another swing at it. And it, it leads to weaker product overall. That's why anthologies never took off. Marketing-wise, they can be great because you can immediately get all the different authors to represent and bring in their own individual audiences for a cumulative effort. Marketing-wise, it's fantastic, especially depending on the topic. But when you don't, when you keep that as your focus, bring in more people, pay attention, as opposed to we're putting out a good quality product, of course it's not going to catch on. On we go to the next. Question number nine. Name three tabletop RPGs that aren't D&D that writers should try to help them get better at writing characters and plot. 
I'd be very happy to. Here you go. First one, uh, Pasione Los Pasiones by uh, Brandon Leon Gambetta, made by Magpie Games. Uh, you want to get better at writing characters and plot? That's one of the first games you should go for. It's it's a game of soap operas. You'll love it. Two, Mission Accomplished by Jeff Stormer. It is a game entirely predicated on being able to tell a continuous story from structured prompts. It's really going to help you figure out how to organize an arc and organize a progression all the way through. Third thing, I got to throw a bone to my more crunchy players, right? Third thing, how about we do, ooh, let's do something really unexpected. How about Mouse Guard? Mouse Guard is exactly what it sounds like. You are a mouse, and your job is to defend and, and, and be vigilant and be a little hero, but you're a mouse. Um, why is that? Because it takes some of the trappings of the major typical fantasy stuff and it truncates them and makes them more positive and creates more of a niche. And it gets you away from thinking just in the big paint-by-number stock stuff. Because if you want to get better at writing characters and plot, don't only look at the big names in the field. Don't only look at the big major players. Go look at the smaller iterations. Go look at the small niche stuff. Go instead of just if you're wanting to get better at music, don't only go to classical or current popular rock. Go look at jazz. Go look at the blues. Go look at, at modern classical. Go look at soundtracks. People who were taking some ideas and applying them in new ways, in ways that you maybe are not expecting. Try those RPGs out. Uh, tell any of their authors that I said they were cool. They're nice people. You should go check them out. Are there more questions? Ooh, hell of a day. Hell of a day. Shall we keep going? We're doing great. All right. On we go. Question 10, sort of the flip side to question 9. What can I do as a game player to make sure my tabletop RPGs are helping my writing? Hang on. There's a question in the chat. Is there any chance of a Mandalorian or a Netflix Daredevil breakdown in the future? I am more likely to do Daredevil than I am the Mandalorian. I, I love them both. I super love them both. However... Uh, I think Daredevil has more meat on the bone. And uh, I like it better than The Mandalorian, and I have more to say about it. So, yeah, I would do Daredevil. I would do now. Actually, one of the things I had started thinking about doing, because I need something to replace The Last of Us, and I'm going to finish Star Trek Discovery, but I need more like streaming stuff to cover for Patreon. I was thinking about doing the Netflix Marvel shows, including. Um, Iron Fist. I have things to say. Not even from like a, hey, this is the comic book. Hey, this is the, just in terms of like, this is a character. This is how you develop it. This is what this means. Um, it's on my list. Mandalorian, not so much because the Mandalorian, uh, 
Mandalorian is like verging away from how I would break it down and help somebody. Like it's good, but I can get I can give you more tools out of the the Marvel stuff. Other question: Have I had any further thoughts on doing D and D for Patreon or streams? I have. Um, I was all set to like throw some stuff together like a couple weeks ago when all the shit hit all my fans and uh, everything fell apart. I'm still going to do it. I'm still looking to do it. I'm still looking to put together some kind of game component. I'm still looking to talk about gaming specifically. I'm still looking to to do something in that space. Not so much game creation because I'm still trying to get my game out the door. But um, in terms of crafting games and building games and, and helping gamers game more gooder, um, I still want to do something with it. Maybe not D&D, but something. Delta Green, maybe, or uh, Knights Black Agents. I'm still really thinking Knights Black Agents. That's one of my favorites. But something. I want to do something because I want to play again. I miss playing. I miss playing a lot. Um, I really do. I don't know if anybody would play with me. I need like three or four more people. But um, I still want to do something with it. Even if even if everybody thinks it's ridiculous, I still want to do it. Question 10, though. What can I do as a game player to make sure my tabletop RPGs are helping my writing? If, big if, if you know your major issues as a writer, you have trouble writing plot, you have trouble writing characters, you have tr- you worry about your pacing, you have trouble with your dialogue, whatever your issues might be, however many you have, doesn't ultimately matter as long as you have some. Make sure you go out of your way that when you are embodying your character, and of course the RPG has to suit this, if you are playing, you know, Settlers of Catan, you don't necessarily have to, like, get elbow deep in the backstory of your character because you're just trying to, like, get some rocks for sheep or something. But if you know your fault in your writing, you know the issue you're worried about in your writing, make sure you put a premium to that in your role play. If you're worried about dialogue, if you're not sure you can write good dialogue, go play a game and talk like a character. Not necessarily in the most, you know, British received sort of way with an accent, but something more to the effect of communicating as a person. How does this character sound? How does this character express themselves? Think like that. Get your head in that space and your in-text dialogue will improve. Whether you're writing this character, your character, the main character, the bad guy, the the little person over there who's doing, you know, like making soup, who knows what. But once you start focusing on a thing to address it in terms of how you play a game, you will see that effect reach into how you do other forms of art. If you were worried about how you describe action and you're not quite sure you're writing a very engaging action scene, go play an RPG that puts a premium not on moving minis and performing stunts, but in an an RPG like Dungeon World or Apocalypse World or Noir World or or Dogs in the Vineyard or something, where you're forced to paint a mental picture of how action happens. That's the sort of stuff that makes a difference. But use the playing of the game to not only enjoy playing the game because games are fucking rad, but use the playing of a game as a specific chance to improve specific areas in your writing. 
Now, maybe you have a couple. Maybe you worry about plot and characters and action and dialogue. Cycle through them over the course of play. You don't only have to do one and then switch to another one, but, you know, like, make sure you, you okay, this is a chance for me to talk. I'm going to go for it. This is a chance for me to talk about what I'm doing action-wise. I'm going to go for it. And take that brave risk. It'll make a difference. That alone, before anything else, before it just comes down to psych yourself up and do it. Yeah, roar! Just giving it a try and trying to put a premium or a spotlight to it and then using your time and space to allow someone else to also take the spotlight so that you're not monopolizing everything. Like, learn to share, everybody. But once you get into that sort of collaborative, everybody's on the same page trying to tell a story and nobody is the mainest main character, but we're all in this together. Once you every, once everybody gets on that sort of vibe, your writing is improved by how you play games because the games will teach you things about how characters and story and things happen that you can translate into your text. What a wonderful question. I was expecting something far less deep than I got. I'm so glad I answered it. On we go to 11. Originally, this was question number one, by the way. What are simple and complex motivations for characters? These are motivation types. Motivation types are ways we classify and organize the reasons why a character does stuff. Simple motivations used to be called local motivations or immediate motivations. They're the reasons happening in and around right now for the character. A character who is thirsty is simply has a simple motivation to get liquid, to get water. A complex motivation is a motivation that is not simple. A complex motivation is a motivation that takes into consideration the greater picture beyond the character's immediate needs and often includes interactions or engagements or issues or perceptions of other characters. So a character is thirsty. The simple motivation is go get water. Or to engineer that backwards, the character is drinking water because their simple motivation is that they're thirsty. The complex motivation, the, the more elaborate, interstory connected version of that isn't just characters thirsty, they get water. That motivation might be um, water is scarce. So in their urgent, urgent drinking of water, they're flexing to a degree to express the idea that I have water to spare and you don't. I'm therefore better than you. It's a power dynamic flex. So the complex motivation is to assert power in a power dynamic. Complex motivations allow for other things, be they motivations or characters or opportunities or tension or stress or plot or whatever. They allow for other things to come into play. They make possible more stuff. Simple motivations are limited to the character. I'm thirsty. I'm going to have water. You know, complex motivation. Water is scarce. I better hoard mine. So I'm not going to necessarily have water. Or if I do, I'm going to do it in secret. Your complex motivations will almost always add more depth to some degree in some way, whereas your simple motivations are more going to illustrate the depth you already got. They're not going to bring anything new, but they're going to maybe, maybe clarify what you have. Otherwise, they're going to be just a real straightforward explanation. Why are they doing that? Oh, obviously it's this. 
knowing these two things, it's useful because it allows you to figure out what a character would do because sometimes it's helpful along the way of writing to go, why are they doing this? They have to go from point A to point B. Why? Let me think about the simple motivation because maybe that's enough. It's not like you always need both of these things. It's just that sometimes you need one and sometimes you need the other and sometimes you need both, but it's not like an always, always got to have them kind of thing. Sometimes a simple motivation is enough. Sometimes a complex motivation is valuable. Sometimes both are there because the drinking of the water is the critical moment because that's the moment the character suddenly realizes, ah, I know who did the murder or something. But it's about having a motivation of some degree at all in the story. Most times, the more self-centered, that's probably going to be something confusing, So let's say it this way. The more times you can directly draw a line between action and character, you are looking at a simple motivation. And the more times you can draw a line between action, the character taking the action, and something outside the character taking the action, whether that's uh, another character or a society or a a rule or an opportunity or a challenge or whatever, anything that isn't the character and the action. Anytime you draw that line external, going away from our character, you're looking at a complex motivation. Use those as you like. Question 12. What are some things to consider when hiring a comic artist? You know, I don't get asked a lot of questions about comic artists, so I'm always happy when I get a chance to talk about comic artists. I can't say I'm an expert, I've only worked with a few. They've been all very good, but I, I tend to deal more with writers, so my expertise is a bit skewed. However, in terms of hiring an artist for a project, that I've done a couple different times. So some things to consider when hiring an artist. First and foremost, before we talk about their art style, before we talk about their cost, please make sure that your artist is communicative. If they have some kind of rules or boundaries, obviously respect them, but do at least make sure that they're not going to fall off the face of the earth. It really sucks when you you make plans to hire an artist and you have a contract and you pay them and then they disappear, maybe before the money, maybe with the money, but then they disappear and it takes forever and then the next time you hear from them, it's long after the utility is, is possible and it's a whole mess. Make sure your artist communicates and make sure you can communicate with them in some way that is comfortable and possible for the both of you. I've worked with artists who are only accessible through email only at certain times. I've worked with other artists who the minute I have a question, they want to have a face-to-face conversation. There's a whole range of interaction there, but whatever the artist sets up in terms of, hey, this is how I work, respect that. Second thing you're hiring that artist to do a job. So the clearer you can be and the more specific you can be on what it is you want them to do, the easier time they're going to have doing that job. Because if you just rock up to an artist and be like, yo, I need you to just, just draw me like a, just draw me somebody having lunch. And then that's it with no other boundaries, no other guidance. You just sort of just draw whatever. 
and you're intending and wanting it to be specific, but you don't tell them what the specifics are. And then when you receive the work, you get mad that it doesn't match what you want. That's not their fault. That's your fault. Please, when communicating and dealing with an artist, please make clear that, you know, you have an idea as to what you want. Even if you don't know the language, even if you don't know the terminology of art, please at least be able to describe what it is you want. Third thing, please use a contract. Don't just wing in a prayer this. Don't just do this like, yeah, whatever, you know, like a handshake's good enough. No. That's not because the artist is terrible and that's not because you're terrible. It's because a contract allows everybody to know what the hell is going on. And they don't have to kind of, they don't have to work in a gray area. They don't have to be unclear. They can just know that, oh, I'm doing this and I'm getting paid this much and it's due here. And you know to expect I have to pay at this date pay this much because I'm getting this thing. Everybody knows what's going on. Everybody's clear with it. Everybody's happy with it. And then work can proceed easily. Just get it out of the way. Last thing when hiring an artist. It's okay for you to make changes. Now, I don't mean like you pay them for their work and say thanks, then all of a sudden you go into MS Paint and change something. I mean, if they draw a thing and you like most of it, but you have a change to make, it's okay to say, hey, I love this. I just, I, this one thing I need fixed. This one thing needs an alteration. Rather than knock them down a peg, oh, everything is great, but this is totally full of shit. Be supportive, be communicative, be positive in your interaction. Artists, just like writers, just like everybody else, do better when they're treated like people. So if you have an issue with what they've done, be it, hey, could we make this table a little shorter? Or, hey, could we have like a smaller dog in the foreground? Or whatever it is. Say so. Most artists, most of the time, have flexibility and leeway in terms of the number of like dry run efforts before the finished product. Take advantage of that. Take your time. Don't pressure them. This isn't like, do it in 10 minutes or else. No, just leave them to their job. The same way you, if you were writing something, you would want to be left to your end and just write and produce rather than have somebody, you know, like breathing down your neck, urgently demanding it happens. That's the best stuff to consider when hiring an artist. Now, all of that won't matter if you can't find an artist with an art style that aligns with what you're trying to do. Don't just go for the first artist you find. Just like we were talking, you know, just like we've talked in the past about like getting an editor, getting a coach, even finding a pimp to help you get representation in traditional publishing spaces. Shop the hell around. Don't just, you know, get overwhelmed and feel like if I don't pick the first one, I'm never going to make a decision. Take your time, sort it out, weigh your options. I hope that's enough to get you started. Because beyond that, it's just a matter of having a conversation. It's just a matter of communicating effectively what you want and enabling them to deliver what you want in whatever way they produce whatever they make. Just a conversation. Last question of the night. Say more about solving the reader's problem 
when it comes to sales copy. This was a point I stumbled to make um, yesterday in the second draft stream. When it comes to marketing, the longstanding thinking is that your product, your book, is solving a problem that the consumer, the purchaser of that book, has. If we were talking about not books, this gets a lot clearer. Like you're selling a mop to somebody who, you know, has spills on their floor. So a mop is the perfect solution. Your thing you're making should solve the problem the person buying has. When you're writing a book, the prob- one of the problems you're solving is, I'd like a book to read, please. The other problems you're addressing are more subordinate to that. You're writing a mystery novel, and the question, the, the thing you're solving is, I want to read a mystery, or I want to read a book. Question number two, I'd like that book to be a mystery, please. When it comes to solving a problem, there is an inherent level of confidence you are taking on because you are standing up and saying that this thing you've made is able to do a request. It's able to meet a request or resolve a situation. And that confidence for a lot of writers, especially those who are unaccustomed to having that level of certainty in their quality or lacking a support structure to cheer them on, a lot of writers struggle to believe that their book is good enough to solve anybody's problem. And it's that fundamental misunderstanding that keeps them from really like making big jumps forward commercially and transactionally. Your book, it isn't about your book being perfect. It isn't even really about your book being good enough. It's about you believing in what you have done to such a degree that when somebody comes along who is looking for a book that more or less meets the uh, description you have of your work, you're willing and brave enough to stand up and say, hey, look, you've got, you know, you're looking for fill in the blank. I have a thing that exactly fills in your blank. Some of that's courage. Some of that's just straight hey, give this a try. Some of that's salesmanship. Some of that is a willingness to make your idea sound like a good idea. And that requires, on some level, yeah, a little bit of manipulation because it's it's a little bit of, you know, interesting somebody in something else. It's persuasive. And that can require some confidence. But there's also a level of honesty sort of baked in there. You don't want to roll up and be honest. Like I have no self-esteem. I'm a black hole of belief in myself. I'm a shitty person. You probably could find other work, better work written by other people. Like that might be honest relative to how you feel, but that is, that is a different kind of honest than the honest that's going to encourage someone to give you the money for your work. You want the honest in terms of backing up the belief you've done a good job by pointing out what you did a good job on. You're looking, so somebody says, I'd like a mystery novel, please. And you turn around and go, well, I have a mystery novel. Are you looking for a mystery novel where, I'm going to make some things up now, where our uh, group of teen protagonists don't suddenly devolve into like a weird sewer sex orgy? Are you looking for a set of teen protagonists where um, 
they're all across the gender spectrum and all across sort of the intelligence matrix for mysteries. And it's not just one smart kid with her six stupid friends. Everybody contributes somewhat equally, but in different ways. Are you looking for a mystery without a talking dog? Are you looking for a mystery where there are actual real stakes and it's not just about unmasking someone so that the cops, because all cops are bastards, are going to suddenly do all the work at the end? Are you looking for like a real gritty mystery? Are, are you looking for a reinterpretation of a beloved children's story, but something more accurate so that the stoner doesn't talk to the dog the entire time? You want to be able to find ways to talk about what you've... Yes, I totally just sold you Scooby-Doo. You want to find ways to talk about what it is you've made that highlight the hard work you put in to the thing you made. So if you're really like you really put in time to making sure that, you know, your whole story isn't just holy shit, there's a talking dog, then make that clear and make that part of what you use when you go solve the reader's problem in telling them that, hey, you can go pick up this book. One of the really bad ways this is being handled right now, if you're really looking for an example of what I'm talking about, but you want to see like a bad example, it's functionally okay, but it's like poorly done. There's a lot of static images for book sales and the hashtag writing community where what happens is they take a book cover and they slap it on a background in Canva. Then they draw a bunch of little arrows and they highlight certain things as if to say that like, this concept is inside this book. Just follow this arrow. Excuse me, just follow this arrow. Um, it's that sort of thing I'm looking to get you to do, but I'm looking to get you to do it without relying on a visual prompt. Like, I don't want you to have to draw an arrow on a Canva thing. I don't want you to have to make like a little graphic that does everything for you because that's lazy as shit. What I want you to do is be able to put words, come out of your face hole to communicate or text to communicate those things. Hey, are you looking for a story where the stoner talks to the dog, but the dog doesn't necessarily talk back? Come check out my book. Are you looking for a diverse cast of friends to do more than just unmasked capitalists? Cool. Come check out my book. Solving the reader's problem is not just trying to guess what the problem is and then engineer a story to give it to them. Solving the reader's problem is having a confidence in what you've made so that Whatever the problem is, there's some element of your story that solves some portion of their problem. Oh, you're looking for a mystery novel. Now, maybe they're looking for like a legal thriller or something. I don't have a legal thriller, but if you're looking for a mystery novel just to occupy you until you find your legal thriller, come check out my book. Confidence. And the best way to find that confidence is to let yourself be proud of the work you've done. Is it perfect? Nah, there's no perfect. Fuck perfect. But you worked hard on something. It's not bragging. It's not bad. It's not wrong for you to be like, I worked hard at this thing. I feel good about this. I'm better at it now than it was when I was when I started. And let it grow and develop from there. That's how you solve the reader's problem. And then it's just practice, 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 practice until you're able to do it more comfortably. Great question. Are there... Any other questions from anybody in chat? Otherwise, we'll get out of here for the night. Oh, man.
Shall we get out of here? Have we done enough? Let's go. Let's get out of here. We all deserve a break. Thanks, everybody, for being here. This one was tough. I, I appreciate every bit of kindness you've shown me. Uh, I appreciate your questions. Thanks for poking me with a stick. Thanks for texting me, by the way, while I was doing this. I appreciate the encouragement. Thank you. Um, we'll get back on track next week. They, you know, it can't, as the crow taught us, it can't rain all the time. So let's go look at the calendar, shall we? The next time I'm here for another chat will be March the 29th, the last Wednesday of the month. However, the next time I'm here for a stream, I want to do, I think, another like several days of streams in a row because although those are a little bit time consuming and taxing, I think I was really good. I think they really worked out well. So how about we meet right back up here on Monday night, the 27th. So that's next coming this coming Monday at 7 p.m. Eastern for more. What topic, you ask? I have no idea. I don't know. Let's figure that out, and I will let you know, you know, over the weekend. If you want to find out faster than everybody else, go over to johnhelpsyouwritebetter.com and sign up for the newsletter, because they'll know before anybody else does. Thank you so much for being here. It, it really, I needed this. I really needed to, to get this out and just do something. Thanks. Appreciate it. Uh, if you like this, if, if you want to see more stuff like this, jump over to patreon.com slash John helps you write better. $2 a month, man. Helps me feed the cats. Helps me keep the lights on. Helps me feed myself. And uh, means the world to me, your support. I'm grateful for it, every single one of you. I'm grateful for every comment and every thumbs up and every like and subscribe. And by the way, if you're watching this on YouTube, please don't forget to like and subscribe if you haven't already. And click the bell for notifications because... You know, eventually one day I'll have 150 subscribers and maybe something will happen. I think I'm at 147 right now. Let's see if we can get to 150 sometime before I'm 90. Thanks so much for being here. It really means the world to me. I'm going to talk to you guys next week. I love you. All power to all people. Do your best. Talk soon. See you.